can hear me. I got to make sure I turn this thing on right, which it sounds like I did. Good morning. I know you guys can do better than that. We're coming off the Christmas holiday. You guys were just a lot louder than that. Had to get Tim to calm you guys down. It's good to be back. Um, my family also succumbed to sickness. I think this is my first day here in December. Unfortunately, though, if you'll notice, my wife is not here because now she has fallen victim to whatever is going around, which whatever that is, I have no idea. Somewhat happy it's over for me, but I'm praying it will leave my family soon because, yeah, like I said, it's been a month that uh, we've been fighting some type of illness or sickness. Um, as we continue our series, Where Your Treasure Is, as you uh, already have seen, we're going to be tackling John 1. So I want to read the first 18 verses. We're going to pray. Hopefully that's going to calm you down as I'm up here, and uh, then we'll dig in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the beginning, with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word that you use to enlighten us, not only to enlighten us, Lord, but to give us life. So, Lord, we pray that as we spend time in your word now, that you would use your servant, that you would strengthen him, Lord, that you would help him to speak only those things that are true and only those things that would bring glory and honor to your name. We ask and pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. So as I read, these first 18 verses, hopefully you saw that they are packed with some heavy theological concepts. So much so that we could probably spend months on a sermon series just within these first 18 verses. So here's a sample of those concepts that I just noted. The eternal begetting of the Son, and we'll kind of go into what that is. The Trinity. We saw that element in there. Creation, light versus darkness, adoption, regeneration, the incarnation, the hypostatic union. That's just a fancy term for Jesus being God and man in one person. The glory of God and evangelism. And I'm sure I missed some, but the point is that these first 18 verses are so packed with theology that it sets the stage for the rest of the book of John. So it's just like John from the onset is going for a Hail Mary. If you are a football watcher. Nothing from a Catholic sense, don't worry. So the book of John, as I just said, is heavy with theology. So much so that it's described in this way. The book of John is like a pool that's safe for a child to paddle in, but deep enough for an elephant 
to swimming. So he's going to give us some heavy concepts, but not so much so that he's going to leave us confused. But for you folks that love your theology, he's not going to put you to sleep. And hopefully I'm not going to put you to sleep. Some of you, I'm sure, are already in your happy place, which that's okay. And hopefully, you know, you'll be in and out or you'll go back and listen to this later. So with that said, although it's packed with theology, John, through the Holy Spirit, presents his gospel in such a way that those who read it can understand it and come to believe. In fact, John does not leave his readers to speculate why he wrote this narrative. But instead, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he tells his audience specifically why he wrote this book. So although it's heavy with theology, he's going to give you the purpose as to why he wrote this narrative about Jesus. So it says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that is why John has wrote this book. So how does John begin his book that his audience may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name? If you have any familiarity with the other Gospels, you'll notice that John begins his Gospel in a very distinct way. Mark and Luke, if you remember, both begin with the one who will prepare the way of the Lord, John the Baptist. And we'll see an element of John the Baptist here, and we're going to get into him a little later. While Matthew begins his Gospel with a genealogy, that takes the reader back to the father of the faith, Abraham. John, though, takes us back, and he's going to take us way back, right? He's going to take us to a time before John the Baptist, a time before Abraham, a time even before Adam. You notice right there in verse 1, he's taking us back to the beginning. It tells us in the beginning was the word. And another way that that's noted is the Lagos. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now we can go into an explanation of what the Lagos is, or different theories that people have and why John uses this word. But again, we only have 40 minutes, so unless you guys want me to expand this a little further and make this like a two-hour sermon, which I don't think we do, we'll save that for another time. Now a quick spoiler alert before I continue. <clears throat> Looking ahead to verse 14, John identifies the individual that he designates as the Lagos or the Word in verses 1 and 2, in 1 and 2 rather, as none other than who? None other than Jesus. And in doing so, what is John telling us? In beginning his gospel this way, John is focusing on the deity of Christ and showing us that the Word, Jesus, is fully God. The Lagos was in the beginning, which if he existed in the beginning, he is eternal, meaning he is without beginning and without end, an attribute that is unique only to God. So in saying that Jesus is eternal, John is showing us that Jesus is in fact God. He continues, though, that the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So again, as we look at these words in the beginning, it should definitely take us back to the first three words in the Bible, right? As we look at the book of Genesis and as we open that up in chapter 1, we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is very purposeful in using those three words as he wants to point us to who Jesus truly is and show us that Jesus is fully God. So not only is the word eternal, but the word also actively participated in the work of creation. He, the Word, is the source of life. And again, that's an attribute that would only be to one, the true God. His glory was beheld, as we look at verse 14, another thing. Glory is only something that is to God alone, right? We say, to God be the glory, or solely Deo, Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Something else that's just solely attributed to God. And there are some things that need to be highlighted here. And what I want to get into specifically is what John isn't saying. And more importantly, what John is saying here. So as we look at this text, what isn't John saying? 
because these are some of the fallacies or some of the heresies that they had to deal with back in that time. And even in the first and second century as a church, we had to deal with and some of these things you'll see we even deal with today. So as John opens up that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, he is not telling us that there are two gods. John is monotheistic in his theology. He is not embracing polytheism, but he is stating clearly that Jesus is God and God the Father is also God. He's also stating that Jesus is not the Father, nor is the Father Jesus. And we're going to look into this as we look at verse 1. Notice that it says that the word was with God. The preposition pros, which we would use in the Greek, the word with, shows us what? It shows us distinction. It shows us that, yes, the Father is the Father, and he is God. But the word, Jesus, is also God, and he was with God in the beginning. So that use of the preposition indicates that the word is distinct from the Father. And in fact, as several commentators note, the same preposition shows that there is an intimate personal relationship between the Word and the Father. And it's no surprise that as we look further ahead in John, that Jesus continually says that. Lord established that relationship that we had before creation. As he's getting ready to go on the cross, you can see him having that intimate relationship that he has with the Father, and yet he says, Lord, not my will, yet your will be done. So there's intimacy between the Father and the Son. There's a relationship between the two, and yet we can see with that preposition that there is a distinction. The next clause in the word was God further expands on the fact that the Father and Jesus are in fact distinct. The clause notes that the word was God, not God was the word. Again, to note the distinction between the Father and the Son and to show us that Jesus is, in fact, fully God. So if it would have said that God was the word, that would take us right back to the Father and solely the Father. But it, since it tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, it is fully telling us that Jesus is, in fact, God. And that is a theme that is not only shown here, but it's a theme that will continue throughout the book of John. John 10.30. The Father and I are one. John 17 and 11. So that they may be one just as we are one. And here's another home run. Another sports reference for you. John 8.58. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. A clear reference to Exodus 3 where Moses asks God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In John 8:58, there is no refuting that Jesus claims to be God because immediately after saying this, what did the Jewish people want to do? They want to stone him. They definitely knew what Jesus was referring to when he said, I am. So if we're going to hold that the Father and the Son are distinct, yet both fully God, we're going to take it a step further even though it's not in this text, because I said we could cover the Trinity. We're also going to assert that the Holy Spirit is also a distinct person within the Godhead and fully God. So as a church... And not only as the church here in Tom's River, but as a church universal, we affirm according to the New City Catechism, which holds to the confessions from the Reformation and says this, that there are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Now I'm going to kind of explain further what that word substance means, because that kind of leaves us confused in terms of what we're talking about when it gets to the Trinity. But substance, substance, rather, simply means that all the divine attributes that 
are identically common to each of the three persons who subsist in common of the one essence. So what I'm typically saying is, or what I'm trying to say here is, there are no attributes that the Father has that the Son doesn't have or the Holy Spirit has. And we can go the same way and say there's no attributes that the Son has that the Father has or the Holy Spirit has. Or we can say there are no attributes that the Holy Spirit has that the Father and the Son do not have. And that is why we would say they are of the same substance and of the same essence. <clears throat> so in closing this section, I think it's important to note that this doctrine totally dismisses the heresy of modalism, the belief that God is one person who appears to us in three different modes or forms. So pretty much if you look at modalism, they'll hold to in the Old Testament, God appeared as Father. And I know some of you might be familiar with this. In the Gospels, God appears as Jesus. And then as we move from Acts forward, God now appears to us as the Holy Spirit. So what modalism will hold to is that God manifests himself throughout history as three different people. But we hold that, yes, there is three distinct people, yet one God. So hopefully that made sense to you. <clears throat> so this section here that I just read in verses 1 through 18 shows us that both the Father and the Son, yes, the Spirit, were all involved in the work of creation. As we looked at that creative piece in verses 1, 1 through 4. And here's the beauty for us who are in Christ. We also know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were also involved in our salvation. So John teaches us in this passage that Jesus is fully God. And here's the ways in which he does it. He was in the beginning, verses 1 and 2. He was with God. Again, that distinction using that Greek prepositional phrase, uh, pros. He, the Lagos, was God. All things were made through him. In him was life, verse 4, an attribute only to God. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And uh, verse 18, he is God, revealed God. So if we want to see what truly God is like, it can only be done through the Son, Jesus Christ. But the unique thing about verses 1 through 18, John also teaches us that Jesus is fully man. So remember I talked about earlier the themes that run throughout the text, and one of those themes being the hypostatic union. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is also fully man in one person. <clears throat> Verse 14 tells us, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh involves the incarnation of the word, which simply means that the word took to himself a human nature. So when you hear the incarnation, that is what that means. It means the word taking on human flesh. Now with respect to Jesus' human nature, it's important to note a few things. And all these points that I'm going to give you are derived from Hendrickson's New Testament commentary on John. So first point to note, the word becomes flesh is not in a sense where the word ceases to be what it was before. So the word becomes flesh and remains the word, even God. So it's not like Jesus takes on flesh and now is no longer God. Again, the hypostatic union will tell us that Jesus is still fully God and also fully man. <clears throat> Second, Jesus assumes the human nature without laying aside the divine as was just noted and the divine and human nature of Christ become fully united without being fused. So, not to embarrass Matthew, but I remember back in the day talking about mermaids, part fish, part person, part mermaid, is something like Matthew said, right? So it's not like Jesus becomes part man, part God, and now it's a 50-50 split, nor as I drive Tara crazy with, I don't know if you guys are familiar with a rapper called Shylin. But when he's talking about the hypostatic union, he's like, Jesus both God and man 200%. I get yelled at because my wife will tell me there is no 200%, but I'm not a mathematician. So Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. <clears throat> Third, the Greek word used for flesh here, sarx, has reference to a human nature considered not sinful. And that's something important to note. 
that although Jesus takes on a human nature, he does not take on a sin nature as we do. Yet he is subject to weariness, pain, misery, and ultimately death. This is important to note because if Christ had a sinful nature, he would not qualify as our substitute. So now the fact that Jesus became flesh is not an abstract thought, but something that John witnessed in the flesh, and no pun intended there as I say that. But John tells us that Jesus tabernacled or dwelled among us, and we have seen or beheld his glory. So John is an eyewitness. John is somebody who has spent three years with Jesus and can fully attest that, yes, Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Hendrickson notes concerning John and other witnesses beholding Jesus' glory that the verb for beheld indicates careful and deliberate vision which seeks to interpret its object. It refers to physical sight but goes on to include calm scrutiny, contemplation, or even wonderment. An individual regards an object and reflects on it, scans and examines it with care, studies, views, and considers it thoughtfully. With all that said, God in the flesh was not a figment of their imagination, an optical illusion, or a fantasy. The word Jesus was fully man, and John makes this more and more evident throughout his gospel. He shows us first and foremost that Jesus had a true body. Jesus felt physical pain and had physical needs as we look at John 4, 6 through 7 when it tells us Jesus was wearied from his journey and needed a drink. Chapter 19, verse 28 tells us he thirsted. So when Jesus is up on the cross, <clears throat> we see that he actually thirsted. We also see, though, that Jesus had a reasonable soul. So in order to be man, you have to have a physical body and a reasonable soul, and Jesus had both of those. And we see that as Jesus shows emotion. In 11.35, if you remember, it tells us that Jesus wept. In uh, chapter 11.33 and 12.27 and in 13.21, it says his soul was greatly troubled. And in uh, 20.27, as we look beyond after his death, Thomas was told, as we get back to the physical aspect, to touch his hands and his side that he might believe. So Jesus was somebody that you can go up to and physically touch. Again, attesting to his human nature. So after looking at these verses, we affirm that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And I apologize that I had to kind of like steamroll through it, but again, only having 40 minutes. I want to get on to uh, something else that I feel is very important in the text. So to sum up this section, I'm going to read to you the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8, paragraph 2, which iterates the church's belief concerning Jesus. And the only reason why I'm doing this is they say it a lot better than I could ever say it. So here's what it says. It says, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. So Jesus is fully God, fully man, shares the same essence and substance as God the Father, and as you saw, has the same substance as Mary, making him fully man as well, yet without sin. So Jesus being fully God and fully man is the only one that can reconcile us to God. He is the only one who qualifies. And hopefully we understand that because of sin, all of us are enemies of God. Because all of us have that human nature where we have a sin nature and are born in sin. All of us at birth are enemies of God. So only God 
could save us. That's why Jesus had to take on human flesh and be our substitute. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin causes us to walk in darkness, and the only way to overcome the darkness is to turn to the light. That is the only way to overcome the darkness. When we believe in Jesus and receive him, we are no longer enemies of God, but we become children of God. And there's that theme of adoption for us. We are no longer in darkness, but we've been enlightened by the true light. Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. For those who have yet to receive Jesus, I implore you to consider John's purpose of this book, that he has written these things that you might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. For those who have received Christ, I encourage you to be like John, but not John the author, John the Baptist. Because going back to our text, and here's where we're going to spend the remainder of our time. Notice what verses 6 through 8 say in reference to John the Baptist. It says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And that is believe through the light, not John. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then moving ahead to verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And finally, verses 26 through 27, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John knew and understood that Jesus was far superior because he knew who Jesus was as God. And that's why John could say he was before me. And as verse 29 shows us, he also knew that Jesus was man. And he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. And in knowing this, John couldn't help but to do what he was born to do. And that's bear witness. That was what John was commissioned to do by God. The one who first bore witness when he leapt for joy in his mother's womb, when she was greeted by Mary, now cries out so that those who don't believe may believe. For those of us who know Jesus, we are called to do the same. You know, our theme has been where your treasure is. And I'm sure if I go on many Facebook accounts or Twitter accounts or any other type of social media, we can see where most people's treasure is. We have no problem crying out what's going on in the political arena. We have no problem crying out whatever our hobbies are. We have maybe no problem crying out in the next couple of days of what our New Year's resolution is going to be. Mine is going to probably be stop eating cookies because put on a couple of pounds since the last couple of days. But when it comes to these things, we have no problem crying out what our feelings are, what our thoughts are. We have no problem expressing ourselves. Do we do the same when it comes to Jesus? Do we bear witness as John does? I was thinking back. And uh, many of you could probably attest to the same thing. And as I'm thinking back, I'm looking at it from the perspective of when I first got saved to now. And I'm sure many of us were that guy. You know, you got saved, you went home, probably threw out a lot of your records or CDs or tapes or A-tracks, depending on when you were born. We don't have to discuss what you threw out. <laughs> 
but you went home and threw out a lot of old music, old movies, because you felt like you were a new creation. And then you went to work, or you went to wherever you, you know, frequent at, and people could notice something different about you. And you couldn't wait to tell them what was different about you. And then moving forward, and there's nothing wrong with this, but a lot of times we uh, have a tendency to do what I'm going to say next and then hide it under a bushel. We thirsted for knowledge. We wanted to get in our Bibles more. We wanted to partake in Bible studies more. Some of us went to seminary. Some of us did whatever we do to try to gain more knowledge when it comes to the Word of God. And then it's like we stopped going forward and presenting the Word. Because the study of the Word and learning more and more became more important than proclaiming it. And I don't know if that's where you find yourself, if, if you do, because that's sometimes where I find myself. Got to study more. I got to learn more. Got to make sure my presentation is right. I got to make sure that my theology is tight, or whatever the case may be. And then we don't take the message to where the message is supposed to go. And that's what we saw. The message is simple. John's purpose for the book is very simple. I'm just to go forward and tell people who Jesus is. That's my calling. That is my calling. Had a discussion with some uh, people the other night I was at dinner, Friday night. Probably two late nights. <laughs> probably why I'm tired. But uh, we were talking about this very thing. You know, as a church, and I would say this is probably something with the church universal. It seems like we've lost our way when it comes to our mission. And what I mean by that is our tendency is to want to bring everything here. Want to do a, a bulk of our ministries here. Want to bring people here, whatever the case may be. But we're called to go out. We are called to go out and present that gospel message. So I'm not saying stop doing Bible studies. I'm not saying stop having Sunday services because that's what we're called to do as well. But what I am encouraging you to do is, is to go out and be a blessing to the nations and proclaim Jesus. Proclaim Jesus. And I'm not saying this is here, but I've seen it in other churches. I think one of the things that prohibits that is a paid clergy or having a lot of staff or even for us having community groups. And what I mean by that is we look as the leader as the individual that's supposed to do it. But we pay the pastor. He's the one that's supposed to go out and proclaim the word. Oh, we have five or six elders on staff. They're supposed to go out and proclaim the word. We have community group leaders. Aren't they the ones that are supposed to go in the neighborhood? No, we're all called. It doesn't matter what station that you hold in the church. Every individual in here, if you proclaim Jesus as Lord and you believe in him, you are called to go out and proclaim the gospel. That's your calling. You're not called to just receive and then to sit in a seat. We are all active participants when it comes to bringing forth the word of God. And I encourage you to do so. It says, we are called to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And this is what John, or Jesus rather, in John tells his disciples, just in case you don't think that this applies to you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. We are called to bear witness to Jesus as God incarnate, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the light who came into the world that we may have life. And to proclaim God's invitation to enter into this life by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. I'm going to say that again. We're called to bear witness to Jesus as God incarnate. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The light who came into the world that we might have life. And to proclaim God's invitation to enter this life by turning to Christ in repentance and faith. I encourage you to do so. As we look again at the book of John, and our time is no different 
you know, we have a tendency to look back in history and think that there is something new under the sun, yet we're continually reminded that there is nothing new under the sun. But going back to verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And then it continues, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We live in a world where many do not know him, and many have not received him. So by way of application, if you are one of those folks who have not believed, believe. I can't make you do that. I can't pull on your heartstrings. That has to be through the Spirit. But if you heard this message today, I encourage you to get with one of the pastors. Um, I believe they will be standing up here during communion time. I encourage you to talk to them, um, whoever you came with. If you have any further questions in regards to what was said here, I encourage you to go and talk to them. This is a, a message that cannot be taken lightly when we're talking about Jesus. If he is life, you're really not living life until you have Jesus. That's more like the walking dead, right? For all you zombie people. <laughs> for those who do believe, acknowledge what he has done for you. I mean, what a way to get started. I, I come from a, a church. I came through many churches back in the day. That's what happens when you grow up in an Italian family and a black family. <laughs> so dad was more of the Catholic side and mom was more of the charismatic Pentecostal side. But I remember going to the uh, charismatic Pentecostal churches. And I know Anthony is going to feel this one as well. But somebody would always get up and testify. You'd have somebody, you know, get up there and say what God has done for him. And then someone would sing, when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me. I see some smiles over here. I'm taking some folks back. My very soul cries out. Hallelujah. Thank God for saving me. It's very simple to just get up and acknowledge what God has done for you and tell someone. Even in the very midst here, just think of the encouragement that that might be for somebody else and a reminder that that might be for somebody else. Because newsflash, we're no different than the Israelites we tend to forget as well. That's why we're called to acknowledge what God has done for us and to share it. And lastly, go and bear witness. The lamb that was slain was slain for you. That's the greatest treasure. Any other treasure that you would get, you would run and go tell somebody. Well, some treasures. If I hit the lottery, I'm sorry I wouldn't tell you. Even on a play. Because I know I have a, a lot of new relatives. Lots <laughs> of money. But typically, once we win something, once we get something, we want to tell somebody. We're quick to post that on Facebook or Instagram or whatever else. Hey, look what I got. Why would we do less with Jesus? So my encouragement to you is to bear witness to the light. God has done so much for you. Go forth and tell somebody. Let us pray. Father, we just praise your name. We praise you that we have such a great Savior who is fully God and fully man. And that came down to take on flesh for sinners such as us. That we might have life. And Lord, you have given us life through your Son. So, Father, may we contemplate all that Jesus has done for us, especially as we partake in communion today. And then as we leave this place, Lord, let it not just be a meditation here. Let us go forward, Lord, and tell others about the goodness of Jesus, who he is, and what he has done for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.